This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Sarah is an associate professor of religious studies at Northwestern University, uh, where she specializes in the study of media, religion, and culture, religion and the environment, and American culture and consumerism. Taylor also teaches in Northwestern's program in environmental policy and culture and in the American Studies program. Um, she's had numerous research positions, including at the Marty Mar- Martin Marty Center at Chicago, um, among others, uh, various awards and fellowships, including a Mellon Fellowship, uh, Louisville Institute Fellowship, Rockefeller Foundation Fellowship, Wabash Center Fellowship, uh, Woodrow Wilson Fellowship, and so forth. Uh, It's truly an impressive CV to read. Um, Her first book, Green Sisters, A Spiritual Ecology, was published by Harvard University Press in 2007 and immediately garnered several awards, including the Catholic uh, Press Association's first prize for best book on gender issues. Um, It's... uh, documents the growing movement of environmentally activist uh, Roman Catholic religious sisters in North America. Uh, and this has been followed by Ecopiety, Green Media, and the Dilemma of Environmental Virtue, just published. You have to be so excited. This came out from NYU Press this past fall. Um, we'll be hearing about it tonight. And now I, w- I wish we had you booked back-to-back for another talk on your next book project because this has to do with Selling Planet B, Marketing Mars Migration and Manifest Destiny. Um, that, I, I want to hear more about this. Sounds fantastic. Um, in terms of service to the, the um, larger academic community, Sarah's uh, sets a great example for all of us. She's on several editorial boards, including of the journal of the American Academy of Religion and several others, and she's been very active in the AAR. Um, We all know that that's real work. Uh, It's often not compensated anything other than thank yous and sometimes not even that, Uh, but it's the work that holds us all together. And in fact, that's how I know Sarah and just admiring the kind of work she's done, including at the regional level, which is the ultimate and thankless uh, labor, I think, uh, because it flies so far under the radar. But absent that, our grad students would never have a foothold, it seems to me. Uh, So thank you for that kind of labor. And then she was also on the board of directors at the national level, leaving a mark there. Um, Finally, I should say that Sarah is donating her honorarium to uh, groups who are helping mitigate the damage from the Australian fires. So thank you for that. That's a great example for us. Uh, Please join me in welcoming Sarah McFarland-Taylor. Okay, so I think I'm mic'd here. Can everybody hear me? Okay, so I'm going to put this to a side, rearrange a little bit so I can see my notes. Okay, great. Well, Greg, thank you for that lovely introduction. And um, thank you all for coming out tonight to hear a little bit more about ecopiety. And thank you to Kathy Moore who did so much work setting this up, and to the CAP Center um, and all the staff, and also for so generously inviting me and graciously hosting my talk on eco-piety this evening. 
To be back in my old Santa Barbarian stomping grounds means more to me than you can imagine. But to be speaking in conjunction with the center that honors the legacy of Walter Capps, who was a beloved mentor of mine, is even more special to me. Walter's mentorship and his model of compassion and decency in academia and then in public life, his faith in the value of public service, and that smart policy, well implemented, can make a positive impact, changing things for the better in our world, has been an inspiration to me since graduate school days. And I've carried that light with me as I've come to focus on climate change issues and to develop my own public voice. The fact that another dear mentor, Wade Clark Roof, directed the center for many years and helped to further Walter's legacy, and that my own intrepid and supportive dissertation advisor, Catherine Albanese, is here um, this evening with the, at the CAP Center makes it even more meaningful. The UCSB community, including colleagues I've more recently met in film and media studies, has helped shape in so many ways who I've become today and the focus of my work. So tonight, I'm going to talk about the new book I have out on the topic of eco-piety, its marketing, and some of the dilemmas it presents. What I aim to do with this book is to redirect the conversation about climate change and environment away from a media sphere dominated by messages that champion the eco-virtues of green capitalist consumerism and personal privatized micro-changes to one of massive public investment, serious and substantial broad-scale policy implementation, systemic changes, and collective action. And I think Walter Capps would really resonate with this approach. But before I go into eco-piety, explain what I mean by that term, dig into the argument, and have some fun along the way, I want to pause for a moment to note just how I came to write this book. As Greg mentioned, I've worked on environmental issues um, since I was at UCSB and studied nature religion with Catherine Albanese. In fact, just last week, I posted a photo of me heading off to teach my very first solo course here on religion, ecology, and culture. And my first book, as Greg also mentioned, was on radical environmentally activist Catholic nuns. So I've been swimming in these waters for a while. But at mid-career, as an associate professor teaching both religious studies and environmental policy and culture for more than a decade, I took a flying leap and decided to return to graduate school to pursue an additional degree in media history, philosophy, and criticism. And I did this with the New School for Public Engagement in New York. It was a transformative experience. Now, I chose the New School in part because of its pronounced history of having been formed as the university in exile. In the 1930s, for those of you who might not know its history, during a time of world crisis, when the whole world was on fire and we were destroying ourselves. Oops, what's that? Was that showing up the whole time? Oh, okay. <laughs> when we were destroying ourselves, the New School for Social Research became a haven for scholars driven from their academic positions, fleeing Nazi Germany. 
the New School continues its commitment to challenging academic orthodoxies and taking intellectual and political risks to address the fires of today. In a time where both Swedish teen activist Greta Thunberg and environmental writer Naomi Klein have said, our house is on fire, our world is on fire, what better place to study media in the Anthropocene than the university in exile? I did this so that I could gain the tools necessary to write this book on environmental media messaging, green consumer marketing, mediated popular culture, climate change, and public civic moral engagement. Embarking upon such a broad-ranging project necessitated a whole new skill set and series of theoretical tools, training, and foundation that, quite frankly, I lacked and needed to acquire in order to do this project, or at least to do it in a way I felt comfortable doing it. So I've spent the past four years gaining these tools and learning how to wield them in new ways by studying media in relationship to environment and culture. So here in Santa Barbara, this community is certainly no stranger to the dire consequences of a warming planet. As denizens of California know all too well, climate crisis is now, it's not located off in some far off future, and as we speak, and Greg mentioned, Australia is literally on fire. In the wake of intensifying effects of climate change, I became increasingly impelled to prioritize media and communication as an imperative central to my work on environment and public moral engagement. Both my researching and teaching probe what might translate public concern for the environment, not just into action, but into the kind of action that actually moves the needle on climate change and makes the kind of difference that as environmental economist Gernot Wagner puts it, the planet will actually register and notice. Northwestern University, where I teach, espouses something it calls the AND model. And this model takes a myriad, takes myriad forms, but one of these forms it takes is that it promotes extradisciplinary training, such as me going back and getting a media studies degree, that enable faculty to take risks innovate and explore new visions while modeling the kind of research that transcends discipline-specific approaches in order to tackle pressing collective problems. Climate change is one of those defining pressing collective problems, if not the defining per, per, pressing collective problem that necessitates taking risks, innovating, and exploring new visions while transcending discipline-specific approaches in order to get the work done. The undergraduate course I teach most frequently now is called Media, Earth, and Making a Difference. Not a typical course one might expect to find in a religious studies department, and yet there it is. Borders and boundaries are shifting in our time as they must, and this includes what media and cultural studies scholar Michael Pickering refers to as the need to negotiate the limitation of academic specialisms when investigating multiple convergences and flows in cultures of modernity. So boundary crossing, convergences and flows can thus be found in each of this book's chapters. 
But why has media become such an important leg of the religion environment and media scholarship tripod for me? The climate clock is ticking. And moment to moment, the immense rhetorical power of mediated popular culture imbues our everyday lives, morally affirming and discouraging its every aspect. Especially when delivered in storied entertainment form, mediated popular culture texts have a particular and pervasive power. As strategic communications scholar Deanna Selnow demonstrates, mediated popular culture influences our taken-for-granted beliefs and behaviors about how things ought to be, perhaps, just are, as well as what is normal and abnormal, desirable and undesirable. We now clock an average of 11 hours of screen time a day on our smartphones and other de devices alone, not even counting things like printed books or magazines, comics, radio, billboard advertisements, flyers, non-electronic games, or films very quaintly now viewed outside the home in an actual cinema. 66% of us experience nomophobia, a fear of being separated from our cell phones. I'm surprised it's that low. Um, and 11% of us would much rather leave the house without pants on than without our cell phones. In terms of narrative encounter and critical mass messaging hits, mediated popular culture is where most Americans live. In engaging in issues of environment and climate change, in what is, to say the least, a time-sensitive situation, I want to meet people where they live, even if, or perhaps especially if, the realm of the popular is often sneered at as lowbrow and or dismissed as being beneath academia. Popular media, for good or ill, say media ethics scholars, Phillips, Phyllis Japp and colleagues, have become our cultural thesaurus of everyday life, often the only common frame of reference across race, gender, class, and other social divides. Popular culture appears to have replaced religious texts, literary classics, history, ritual, and oral tradition as the source for immediately recognized examples. Plots, analogies, phrases, proverbs, and metaphors from familiar sources provide a shorthand that allow us to fill in the particulars and quickly categorize immediate happenings. Now here, I would offer that replaced is perhaps too absolute an assessment and that more appropriate, appropriate would be a convergence model as traditional religious texts, as many of us know, are clearly still re relevant and resonant in the lives of many who remain invested, but in convergence with many other forms of much more pervasive media. Mediated popular culture provides the most immediate and mass accessible reference points in terms of meaningful, identifiable, guiding moral narratives. In the act of reading mediated popular culture, and I would add remixing it as well, Jap and colleagues find that prosumers, that is producers, consumers, come to recognize ethical flashpoints, those moments in popular cultural texts um, when action moves one way or another, when we sense, however dimly, the implications that hang on that moment, when we realize there's more to the story than simply the problem solution of surface scripting. Those moments of realization, it strikes me, are key to popular moral engagement. 
as it generates meaning, critique, and reflection, and debate at a time of environmental crisis. Practically speaking, most people encounter messages of moral concern for the environment not by reading eco-theologians, or eco-philosophers, or I'm sorry, environmental ethicists, or even from listening to green clergy, but as viewers and users of, indeed participants in, the stories of popular culture. The religious idioms, rhetorics, and moral discourses that inflect popular culture matter to us. Director Joss Whedon, famous for his TV series, Buffy the Vampire Slayer, and films ranging from Toy Story to The Avengers, keenly recognizes the potential and potency of narrative intervention via popular medium for mechanisms of social transformation. Whedon expounds, the idea of changing culture is important to me, and it can only be done through a popular medium. I don't want to create shows with lawyers in them. I want to invade people's dreams. The realm of popular culture is the forum where we engage and work out most of the moral, pressing moral issues of the day. Invading people's dreams includes environmental imagination and our visions for the future of our world. Which brings us back to eco-piety. So eco-piety is a term, shorthand term I use to mean the practice of a kind of personal environmental virtue that is largely voluntary, individual, private. It is most often enacted via consumer purchase uh, and or through personal lifestyle changes. It makes environmentalism and climate change completely the burden of the individual consumer to solve. And this, by design, absolves larger entities and players. Acts of eco-piety can range from buying the right kind of toilet paper to re recycling your plastic water bottle to buying organic food and driving a hybrid vehicle. And of course, there's nothing wrong with that. Those in this room that know me know I am a both-and person, and I do all those things. But the majority of environmental messaging... Oops. I don't know why it went forward so many times. Um, I think I was here. But the majority of environmental messaging we encounter definitely reassures us that these personal, private, virtuous lifestyle practices are all enough and adequate to the task, and they are not, not even remotely close. An example of this can be seen in the upbeat patriotic marketing for America Recycles Day. Now, this America's Recycles Day is promoted, it's in November, November 15th, it's promoted by the EPA, but it's actually funded by some of the biggest petroleum-consuming plastic polluters on the planet, like Coca-Cola, Nestle, and PepsiCo. This is shrewd and calculated strategy to promote small, personal acts of eco-piety, like recycling our plastic. And here you see this ad that says, um, countdown to America, ARD, America Recycles Day, four days. It all comes back to you in this neat, useful form of these remade, no, it does not all come back to us. It comes back to us as an ocean of plastics. Um, less than 9% of plastic ever gets recycled. Uh, it happens to be a very uh, fairly toxic 
process. Um, and, uh, you know, it, 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 but here America Recycles Day becomes this offset for us, this moral offset for consuming um, plastic. And then we in our minds imagine that the plastic unicorn or the plastic fairy comes along and remakes our Dasani water bottles into something useful, and then we're absolved through that personal act of eco-piety. This not coincidentally keeps us busy and focused on performing the eco-piety of recycling, thus effectively distracting us from larger collective measures that would effectively ban production of non-essential plastics in the first place. The EU directive that bans 10 major forms of single-use plastic by the year 2021 is just such an example of a policy measure that applies across the board and does not rely on voluntary individual actions of a small set of the eco-pious. In effect, environmental messaging that emphasizes personal eco-piety keeps us fretting about myriad daily eco-pious decisions, and it strategically keeps us from focusing on the big picture of the kind of broad-scale changes that the Earth will actually notice and register. Ultimately, then, what I delve into in this book is um, how discourses of virtue are used to redirect global climate crisis from a collective politics to the choices of individual consumers. In essence, my argument is that the marketing and championing of a dominant narrative of fundamentally individualized, free market, privatized, voluntary acts of environmental piety, promoted as addressing the monumental environmental challenges we face, are not simply inadequate to the task, but are counterproductive in the worst possible ways. In fact, since I've completed the manuscript, I've read a number of essays that flat out argue that this perennial emphasis on an obsession with personal tiny acts of environmental virtue, or what I call eco-piety, actually constitutes a form of soft climate denial. Or, as climate writer Mary Anise Hegler calls out, the belief that this enormous existential problem could have been fixed if we had all just tweaked our consumption habits, is not only preposterous, it is dangerous. There are strong vested corporate economic interests for transmediating the dominant micro-changes in pious green consumerism narrative. There is a vested interest in keeping us small and distracted, complacent and self-assured that we have done our bit in these small, simple acts to save the planet. Examining a series of sightings of eco-piety in popular culture, I find that eco-piety as marketed is both too dourly restrictive in some ways, yet grossly facile in others. It simultaneously asks too little and too much, making pious actions taken on behalf of the environment, grim, appealing, onerous duties and obligations on one hand, while they constitute superficial perfunctory modes of practice that are by and large insignificant in terms of scale and scope of impact on the other, sidetracking us from directing our energies to more effective collective action, if not exhausting us in the process. 
So as reflected in the book, once again, I am a both-and person. Yes, I bring my reusable bags to the market, and I recycle, I buy local organic food, and when not biking, I drive a plug-in hybrid. But I do think it is imperative to take cognizance in a publicly communicative way, not just in an academic insider baseball way, of strategic messaging that reassures us that what will cure our environmental ills are not broad-based policies, major systemic structural changes, smarter and more rigorous regulation, and massive public investment, but our intimate, voluntary, devotional acts of personal eco-piety, especially as practiced through consumo-piety, virtu virtuous acts of consumption. Conveniently, the dire situation we find ourselves in, then, is not is framed not as the responsibility in large part of the 100 companies, these are what are known as the carbon majors around the world that are responsible for 71% of global emissions and or the fossil fuel industry's 30 plus years of aggressive anti-climate lobbying and merchants of doubt disinformation campaigns or orchestrated combination, in orchestrated in combination with greenwashing marketing campaigns. It is instead the fault of individual consumers for not living the right way, for not being pure enough, for not piously buying the right things. This is a kind of libertarian erotic fantasy fiction that has taken on a life of its own and then in turn is perpetuated and passed along, often with good intentions. In particular in this book, I pay attention to the role played by moral offsets and what social psychologists term moral self-licensing in intertwined stories of eco-piety and consumo-piety. This is what behavioral psychologists, Monin and Miller, um, as they put it, when being good licenses you to be bad. In an economy of environmental virtue, we often exchange <laughs> consumo-piety shopping credits and green identity credentials as moral offsets to legitimate our larger societal patterns of consumption and our dearth of collective public action and serious public investment. And here we have a resplendent and humorous example of this, um, provided by uh, the very clever and talented former Ogilvy and Mather senior copywriter David Krulik, um, who I've enjoyed getting to know through this project. Uh, this is his speculative Prius ad campaign, and the first one shows a mafioso kind of guy. He's, as you can see, he's bringing the, taking the body out of the trunk. He's presumably dumping it in a river, and the tagline reads, well, at least he drives a Prius. The second one, uh, we can probably uh, figure out what's going on here, but it shows a man cruising the New York City waterfront, and he's picking up a prostitute. And again, the tagline reads, well, at least he drives a Prius. And the third one uh, shows a suburban housewife. As you can see, she's sort of in flagrante in the shrubbery with the landscaper at, while her husband is on the porch, a little, cute little Prius in the driveway. Well, at least she drives a Prius. The series provides a good laugh, but it also works because of its cultural resonance. The moral offsetting engendered in green consumer eco-piety messaging is shrewd marketing. Because what do we as Americans already know how to do? 
in spades. We know how to buy products in order to solve problems, or at least things that have been marketed to us as problems. Marketing personal eco-piety as an effective solution to climate change capitalizes on this. Um, Nobel Prize-winning behavioral economist Daniel Kahneman and Amos Tversky famously talk, speak about thinking fast and thinking slow. This is what they call systems one versus systems two thinking. So consumers, for example, when faced with a new product, uh, new materials, new data to process, will evaluate these by making mental shortcuts to what they do know, to what they're already familiar with. That is, consumers default to existing patterns they already quickly recognize. So over many decades, consumer culture has brilliantly schooled us to solve problems through purchase. We already have that slot open in our brains. And it's like a lock and key mechanism where eco-piety as, as a marketed effective environmental solution just fits right in that slot. What's more, performing the right kind of devotional service is key to the notion of eco-piety. And green consumer marketing is quick to offer a template for which acts are most pleasing and pious, virtuous, and efficacious. This skillfully taps into what is arguably a powerful unmarked Protestant ethos of capitalist individualism. That is, green consumer marketing proclaims that each citizen consumer is empowered to affect the healing and restoration of the planet directly through the swipe of a personal credit card. All this priesthood of all credit card holders needs to do is shop our way to a greener world. As media scholars Rupali Mukherjee and Sarah Benet Weiser point out in their research on the mediation of commodity activism, within contemporary culture, it is utterly unsurprising to participate in social activism by buying something. Eco-piety thus thrives, I argue, argue, within the hospitable conditions of a depoliticized marketplace environmentalism and media sphere, media sphere that generates story after story of privatized, small-scale, voluntary, individual acts of green piety as being utterly adequate to dealing with our monumental planetary challenges. So I'd like to share a few sightings from the book with you now, um, and I'll go into one of them in more detail and then um, summarize a few after that. There are many more examples in the book, so this is just a, a, a thumbnail. So the first sighting is drawn from an archive of episodes of HGTV, that's Home and Garden Network series, uh, Living with Ed, starring environmentalist activist um, Ed Begley Jr., this series chronicles Begley's perpetual striving to live a more environmentally sustainable life. Begley's been involved in environmental issues from the 1970s on, but most visibly so when making headlines in the company of other Hollywood stars for pulling up to the Academy Awards red carpet driving not gas-guzzling limousines, but Priuses and other hybrid vehicles. The first season of Begley's reality television show chronicles the actor's daily acts of eco-piety. He washes his solar panels. Um, he puts in, you know, uh, efficient drip hoses in his um, in his uh, drought-resistant garden. He rehabs his kitchen using more environmentally friendly building products. In the second season, however, Begley bridges out, showcasing several 
enormous Hollywood estates and celebrity boomer owners, whom he lauds for practicing green virtue through environmentally conscious living and homeowner consumer choices. In an environmental update to the 1980s hit TV series hosted by Robin Leach, I don't know how many people in the room will remember, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Yes, he was this British host of this show. Begley, like Leach, provides entree into Hollywood's inner sanctums, but does so specifically to, um, to exhibit eco-virtuous exemplars. Celebrity homes featured include the estate of now-deceased Larry Hagman. Does anyone remember what he's most famous for? Playing J.R. Ewing, the oil tycoon in Dallas, and his opulent 20,000-square-foot mansion, Heaven, now owned by the Church of Scientology. Uh, musician Jackson Brown's off-the-grid California branch, and um, former supermodel Ger Cheryl Teague's I'm not sure what this is doing here. I just pressed it once. Um, Cheryl Teague's Balinese-style Bel Air mansion and comedian Jay Leno's environmentally conscious garage that houses his famed colossal car collection. The Lifestyles of the Rich and Green-themed episodes extol each celebrity as a model of eco-piety for acts ranging from adding solar panels to the roofs uh, switching the mansion's swimming pool over from chlorine to an ozone cleaning system, and in Jay Leno's case, uh, the installation of a hot water cozy, heater cozy, and recycled rainwater system to facilitate more eco-friendly car washings. Living with Ed's tour of green celebrity homes squarely applauds daily individual consumer choices and home-based lifestyle purchases but Mark's elect, markedly lacks discussion of broad-scale policy changes, political activism, or any kind of collective power of governments to address environmental challenges in substantive ways. Instead, the focus of each episode is on individual virtue, on the individual virtue of stars who green their mansions as voluntary, devout environmental practice. So Begley shows audiences how Cheryl Teagues has in installed a low-flow sh low shower faucet in her mansion, and we, the viewers, receive this voyeuristic pleasure of entering Teagues' private shower and her intimate domestic spaces as she performs eco-piety for the camera. We can only wonder, however, how it might have been different if instead the program had shown Teagues and her influential, well-heeled celebrity friends collectively lobbying to make changes in California's agricultural and industrial water use policy, attending local and state planning meetings, using their prestige as celebrities to meet with California senators and representatives. Instead, the acts of eco-piety displayed are small, personal, depoliticized. What's more, these small acts implicitly offset or morally license the excessive capitalist consumerism practiced in the lifestyles of the elite eco-virtuous celebrities. Here we are at heaven, once again. In Begley's guided tour of Larry Hagman's luxurious estate, Heaven, we learn that Heaven's landscaping sports ecologically conscious, fire-resistant ice plant. Okay, we all know what ice plant is. Everybody plants ice plant in California, but instead of conventional grass. 
Um, he does have a field of solar panels to generate electricity, um, and they also uh, feature a recycled water indoor swimming cave that he has in his mansion. No cognizance is taken, of course, of our, reali of our reality TV voyeuristic, in our reality TV voyeuristic pleasure of touring heaven, of the wildly profligate consumption of Earth's resources to put a 20,000 square foot mansion encircled by a man-made freshwater fountain that acts like an evaporating moat all atop a mountain in arid Ojai, California. The intentions of Bagley and the program's producers to show audiences moral models of celebrity eco-piety for emulation are undoubtedly well-intentioned, but the narrative focus on the greening of the lives of the rich and famous reinforces the narrative once again that private voluntary acts of eco-pious consumo-piety are central to addressing environmental crisis. What's more, in the show's portrayed economy of virtue, the environmental impact of this 20,000 square foot mansion is implicitly exchanged for or offset by the installation of expensive ecologically conscious features, such as an indoor swimming cave. Jay Leno's hot water heater cozy and various high-tech eco features in his garage likewise absolve him of the environmental impact of his more than 200 purchased cars and motorcycles and his elite consumer lifestyle as an auto enthusiast. Celebrities switching to ozone technology to clean the mansion swimming pool similarly exchange the small act of model civic green virtue as indulgence to legitimate their larger consumer excesses, reasoning that they are all doing their part. And, and we've all heard this, every little bit helps. Every little bit adds up. So, quote, every little bit doesn't always help, unquote, states former lead senior economist of the Environmental Defense Fund and now NYU economics professor Gernot Wagner. In Going Green and Getting Nowhere, Wagner, who has advanced degrees in political economy and government from Harvard and economics from Stanford, argues that the changes needed are so large and profound that they are beyond the reach of environmental individual action. Wagner offers that he personally does not eat meat or drive, but knows fully well the futility of his choices. It is changes in our collective way of life at the national and international level, major structural and systemic changes, says Wagner, that will make enough of a difference that the earth will actually notice. What's more, although virtuous and commendable, the repeated messaging emphasis on individual, small, pious actions can distract us from the need, quote, distract us from the need for collective action, and it does not uh, add up to enough, unquote. He also points out how airlines now list voluntary carbon offsets on their booking websites, but these offsets are less than a drop in the bucket and serve as marketing ploys to make the eco-conscious feel better about flying and in turn book more flights. What would be more effective? Well, broad-based legislation to tax carbon at the point of its extraction would be a good start, suggests Wagner. Similar to Monin and co-researchers' observations about moral self-licensing, Wagner points to the problem of single action, 
sorry, single action bias, and what is also sometimes called crowding out bias. This is when people do one thing for the environment, like, oh, I brought my bags to the grocery store. Um, they act in one area and then feel they have done their civic duty and move on. He says, if you catch yourself recycling that paper cup and think you've solved global warming for the day, think again. He, like behavioral economists Harding and Rapson, cite studies showing that people who voluntarily pay for green electricity often go on to increase their energy consumption. I know, that's depressing. But likewise, people who purchase hybrid vehicles often negate fuel efficiency savings by actually driving more. Wagner does not dissuade anyone from recycling, going vegetarian, or driving an electric car. In fact, he recognizes that these can be personally mindful practices that keep people conscious of environmental issues. But he cautions that people should engage in such practices with very sober, practical, and a realistic grasp of the fundamental scale of impact at work and the very real psychological dynamics of single action bias. Wagner's very first piece of advice to civic green, the civic green-minded who are committed to making a difference is, quote, don't trust any list that gives you 10 simple things you can do to stop global warming. There is a fine line between simplistic single actions and doing what counts. Well, Naomi Klein, in her recent book, echoes this message and agrees with him. In her chapter with the admonitory title, Stop Trying to Save the World All by Yourself. Here she advocates refocusing our efforts on the greater efficacy and impact of collective action rather than on personal lifestyle micro changes. Or, as Barack Obama bluntly put it to Brian Williams after the cameras and microphones were turned off, this is after the, his, in his re-election um, debate cycle, well, the truth is, Brian, we can't solve global warming because I effing changed, I switched it to effing, but effing changed the light bulbs in my house. It's because of something collective. Now, this was a reference to Al Gore's An Inconvenient Truth, and if you saw that movie, you saw that after laying out the most horrendous existential uh, you know, problem of global climate change and all its horrific ramifications at the very end. He said, what can we do? Well, let's change to complex fluorescent light bulbs in our house. And, um, but I have since learned that Al Gore has updated his view on this and has said, okay, change the light bulbs, but it's more important to change the, uh, the laws. Still, that's a lot of the message that was at the end of an inconvenient truth. So um, just a thumbnail, quick other sightings in this book include an analysis of America's Next Top Models special episode, The Models Go Green, in which, unsurprisingly, going green has zero to do with things like legislation, public policy changes, political activism. But it does signal personal good taste, much like the right accessory matched with a little black dress. The reality TV show competing models move into an enormously environmentally friendly Los Angeles mansion, quote, unquote, environmentally friendly, uh, complete with a large swimming pool and hot tub, green mindfulness cards positioned around the mansion, provide the models with environmentally conscious lifestyle tips, such as the suggestion that limiting their showers to 10 minutes will save 20 gallons of water. At one point, presumably moved by a wave of environmental virtue, six scantily clad models suggestively perform eco-piety by all piling into the same bathtub together to conserve water. The going green theme of the episode peaks at this scene of models group bathing as the rest of the episode 
features a shopping competition. As the episode's anemically pale green theme progressives, narratives of eco-piety and consumo-piety become co-constituting and firmly entwined. Not unrelated to the Go Green episode um, is the bumper crop of green manuals for eco-fashionistas. Starry Vartan's The Eco Chick, How to Be Fabulously Green, offers a guide to eco-fashion, chemical-free makeup, and even debates whether it's eco-friendly uh, to use latex condoms, which are non-biodegradable, they end up in the stomachs of sea creatures. Is it okay for an eco-chick to use them, in theory, because they help mitigate population growth? She says yes. Um, Tasman Blanchard's Green is the New Black, How to Change the World with Style, which Vogue magazine, by the way, advises is a must-read, features movie stars, their eco-styles, and shopping tips. In her chapter, once again, she said, at, called Can Celebrities Save the World? Spoiler alert, apparently they can. Blanchard advises her readers that selecting haute couture is surprisingly a green option. She explains, quote, the higher up you go, the more sustainable the garment. A Valentino, Valentino evening gown, by the way, uh, a Valentino evening gown costs between $12,000 to $30,000, uh, will be made, making only the, made using only the best quality hand-woven fabrics, stitched together by the most highly skilled and highly paid seamstresses. Chances are, even beading, which will probably have been done in India, will be done by skilled craftspeople who are well-paid and well-looked after, unquote. So Blanchard offers no citations, and it's hard to judge what the paternalistically phrased well-looked-after means for these South Asian garment workers hand-sewing tiny beads onto dresses. But in another chapter called I Shop, Therefore I Am Ethical, offers Blanchard's guide to shopping without guilt. In it, Blanchard bemoans the fashionista's, what she calls the fashionista's dilemma of loving nothing more than the rush that comes home, the rush of coming home laden down with heavy bags after a hard day's shop, but then later feeling guilty about it. So she reassures her readers, we love clothes, we love to shop. Some of us would say we live to shop. And if you're smart, this can be a good thing. The trick is to direct your spending power. More recently, the more recently read, released The Conscious Closet, which came out in August, is another fashionista guide in this growing genre. So guilt about one's personal carbon footprint has also given rise to a whole host of what are sin tracking mobile applications. These are um, uh, carbon sin tracking mobile applications, which calculate your personal carbon footprint. So there's no longer any need to guess the degree of environmental sin associated with your individual driving, flying, home energy use, and food consumption when mobile software applications now offer a precise and portable calculable measure. So much like the Catholic confession mobile applications that have come that track a smart user's sins um, throughout the day, environmental sin tracking problems also uh, programs also do this and enable the penitent to log sins throughout the day and then provide a summary at the end of the day or the end of the week that conveniently displays one's transgressions and their impact. But unlike the Catholic confessions apps where you actually need an, you need an actual priest to provide absolution, 
uh, many environmental sin tracking applications have absolution functions built in, allowing penitents to purchase carbon credits to offset their carbon consumption, a practice linked in some environmental circles to building indulgences. And of course, many of these apps also conveniently offer consumer absolution via hyperlinks to partnered online green shopping sites where carbon sins are often offset by contrite acts of green consumerism. An entire chapter in Ecopiety is devoted to the marketing of the aforementioned Prius. As an object, the Prius, as sociologist Pierre de Bourdieu would contend, is a social marker of aesthetic and cultural capital. And I would also add a visual marker of moral commitment and eco-piety as practiced par excellence via capitalist, green capitalist consumerism. The Prius as an eco-pious icon in popular culture, however, is set off in relief against the concomitant backlash phenomenon known as pollution porn, which complicates the dynamics of encoding and decoding the Prius as an icon of virtue. So the second portion of the Prius chapter deals with what are called coal rollers, if you all know what these are. They're diesel truck owners, and basically they've um, taken the filtration mechanisms out of their um, exhaust systems, and they've hacked their computers on their trucks to uh, eliminate the clean burn programs in their computer um, so that uh, they can then belch this black diesel smoke. And the Prius is their favorite victim to target in their coal rolling DIY video making. And I explain a variety of reasons for this and how embedded in these attacks on the Prius, here are some of these Prius attacks, pollution porn posts, um, are also scathing class critiques of an environmentalism perceived as elitist, entitled, and smug. And um, I dig into this more because some of the truck owners say, oh, well, you know, you're in your McMansion and you've got all your eco features in your McMansion, but who built your freaking McMansion? And I'm the contractor that worked on your house in my big bag diesel truck. Or, oh, you're headed to Whole Foods to buy your organic kombucha? Guess who trucked it, with a, trucked it to market with a big bag diesel truck? I did. So these guys are really making a class commentary about this self-righteous eco-piety that entitled Americans have that say, oh, I am so virtuous and eco-pious. The guy who's belching uh, diesel out of his truck is not. And they're saying, uh-uh-uh. You don't get off that fast. Let's, let's look at this more deeply. So I sort of complicate that in that, that chapter. Expressions of eco-piety also infuse the emergence of the figure of the green vampire or the vegetarian vampire in contemporary mediated popular culture. So these are vampires who virtuously um, recycle. Here's Vampire Bill from HBO's True Blood, if you've watched that before, or who temper their voracious desire to consume um, by eco-piously choosing alternative resources, such as synthetic blood replacement. Vegetarian vampires' self-restraint in the face of po the powerful supernatural desire to drain their host to consume um, makes eco-piety surprisingly hot and sexy when practiced by its eco-skilled vampire virtuosi, where just saying no is hotter than saying yes. Intermingled with messages of virtuous consumption and temperance, however, vampire media 
franchises, um, franchises market endless tie-in consumer products to enthralled fans, from vampire wine, vampire crisps, vampire toilet paper and condoms, to makeup and accessories, in turn wetting a voracious appetite to consume. So their marketing and a lot of their, um, a lot of their allegorical content about environment and us as humans being vampires in our consumption of environmental resources is really um, uh, you know, at odds with their marketing plans. These counterpoints of pious consumer restraint and yet enthusiastic, enthusiastic fan participation in vampire narratives via the virtue of consumer capitalism ironically and strategically tap into and feed off one of America's most powerful consumer demographics, and that is teenagers. Other sightings of eco-piety in the book include a chapter on the marketing of green burial products. Um, and the practice of eco-piety embodied literally in endangered, in devotional endangered species tattooing practices. And this is where practices, uh, where activists co-opt the co corporate marketing tool of what is called skinvertising, where you actually sell a portion of your body to advertise. And then they deploy their media, um, their bodies and skin as media witnessing tools for species conservation. I in turn explore the circulation and sharing of these images via social media and various digital media platforms, amplifying the reach of a single tattoo beyond person-to-person -person contact. So there's a generation of mass circulation of stories about the tattoo, images of the animals, and eco-piety in its practice, a kind of environmental tattooing digital lobes and fishes, if you will. And finally, I examine the thematic messaging and strategic use of green hip-hop music in eco-rap as tools of activist urban minority resistance to counter environmental racism. So here are the work of African-American, Latino, and indigenous eco-rappers, such as Chutis Martinez, who some of you may have heard, um, calls not for individual eco-piety and personal micro-changes, but refreshingly, for the collective force of people power and the kind of structural and systemic changes that will make real and noticeable differences in the planet's temperature and in the world's, and in the world's most vulnerable communities, communities that by no coincidence suffer disproportionately the most devastating effects of climate chaos. Now, in the courses I teach in religious studies, and environmental policy and culture at Northwestern, I have a repeated motto that by the end of this term, all of the students can circle it several times in their, in their notes. And that motto is policy. It's what's for breakfast. Ultimately, we need to redirect and recenter conversations about the environment and climate change to focus on policy solutions, not piety solutions. We need to focus on systems, not personal self-flagellations. But how might that, how that might that be done? Well, there are a number of ways, including taking a page out of the Tea Party movement playbook and working to um, get climate defenders into public office at every level of government, from the local planning board and the school board to county state offices, courts, Congress, and of course the executive branch. But for the purpose of the course I teach on media environment and making a difference, we focus on practicing and developing one particular action and skill. We make media. We make media as a bridge to collective environmental action and public policy, 
and students are actually graded. I actually grade students on how appealing and ridiculously easy they make those steps toward participating in collective organizing and action that they build into their self-designed and executed media projects. We also make media to interrupt and intercede in existent media loops, reframing and reformulating them. If we engage and understand media as media theorist Nick Toldry, Coldry urges us to do media as action, that media are something that we do creatively, imaginatively, strategically, it expands the possibilities of how we do media, what forms those media practices take, and the impacts they have. All critical resources for us to make use of as we live imperfectly but resiliently into the now and into the future. Thank you. Last week at the Golden Globes Awards, they served a vegan meal for 1,500 people. They had no choice. They all got a vegan meal. So in terms of your model, what do you do with something like that? Because That's a collective action. You would that is a collective that a action, collective and action. that's a public action. Mm -hmm. That is a public collective action. That is not a personal eco-piety action. They raised a huge amount of awareness through doing, I mean, think of how many homes, the Golden Globes, and then if we look into various other media platforms that also carried it. I mean, I would not consider that small or private. Um, you know, based action. That was a political statement. Yeah. Okay. Thank you. Well, thank you all for coming. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.